I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Robert A. Jensen, author of Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living. You've seen Robert A. Jensen, but you just never knew it. As owner of the world's largest disaster management company, Kenyan International Emergency Services, he has spent most of his adult life responding to tragedy, from the Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11, the Bali bombings, to the 2004 South Asian tsunami and Hurricane Katrina, and and many more disasters. Uh, Jensen, Robert Jensen, has been at the practical level of international incidents, assisting with the recovery of bodies, identifying victims, and repatriating and returning their personal effects to the surviving family members. He's also crucially involved in the emotional recovery that comes after a disaster. He shares a rare glimpse into the difficult work he does behind the yellow tape and the lessons learned. Robert Jensen also tells his own story, the personal toll repeated exposure to mass death brings, becoming what GQ called the best at the worst job in the world. Welcome to the show, Robert. Nice to have you on. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Well, yeah, you're sort of the king of disasters, which uh, is interesting because it seems that we have a disaster every day that we're always dealing with. This horrific disaster that just happened in Michigan at the high school, for instance. Now, there wasn't there's uh, students who were killed and wounded and families destroyed and communities destroyed. So it, it seems just when we open the newspaper, there's always some kind of a disaster happening and uh, we and COVID-19, obviously. So um, it's interesting that even though you have been, you're the expert in the field, we don't know about you. Why don't we know about, why the general public, let's say? Well, it's, it's probably a good thing. I mean, there are disasters every day, and, and they, they're in the media for a day or two or sometimes a little bit longer. But for the people that are directly affected, the families, it's a, it's a monumentous event. It's a change, and it's a horrible change. And it's a change they have to go through, those families from yesterday, that life will never be the same for them, uh, the ones of the students that were, were murdered. And our job is to me is to help people transition. So it's a story that's interesting. It's neat to get behind the yellow tape, but it's not something that if if you weren't personally involved in, you probably don't see because you look at the headlines and then you move on because you don't want to focus on the bad in the world. Um, so it's probably a good thing that most people don't know me. But Robert, you know what we see and this we see the candles and we see the prayers and we see the crying and we see the flowers. Uh, but we don't, as you say, we don't really understand all that's you know that what this what the disaster is about, what we can do as a community, what we can do as individuals. Uh, it all gets sort of masked with this kind of uh, sort of unrealistic way of honoring the dead, I think. Uh, it's and so take us through the yeah. I'm sorry, I think it. Cut no, you go off. ahead. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's several things that occur, and and the first is the expectations, expectations of the families and the expectations of society. Uh, we have these great TV shows about you know crime scene investigation, court scenes, and and everything's done in a, a TV episode or sometimes two. 
and that's not how it works in life. The way I like to describe it is for the family or survivor, it's they drive down a road every day because we're humans. We love to have patterns, most of us. We have a routine schedule. And that's measured in time, a universal measurement. And, you know, every 365 days, we, we start a new year. And so we're driving, take my husband, for example. I'm, he's used to me being on an airplane or traveling, and he's driving down a road. And all of a sudden, he gets a telephone call that the hotel I was in has been blown up or I was involved in a shooting or a plane crash. And, and that road in front of him stops. It just opens up into this huge canyon. And the system, the community, their job is to build a bridge so that he can drive across that bridge to get what is going to be his new normal, to make that transition. I don't use the word closure. I use the word transition. So that he can transition from what was normal, the life he knew, to the life he now is going to live. And that's going to be a very different life. When we have a loved one who is sick or or goes into hospice or passes from age or is expected, the system already knows how to react, and there's there's things we do, funerals, we, we have memorials, we have burials. When we have a mass fatality, especially one that's sudden and unexpected and violent in public, a lot of those things are very different. When do we have a memorial? Is it something the community set up, or is it something the family set up? And a lot of families I talk to feel the biggest challenge for them is that they don't get decisions. They're not asked. People make decisions on what they think is important. And and I try to go into this into the book a little bit. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter my opinion because it's not about me. It's about those people who had the loss and how they are going to make a transition and the decisions that the system can give them are hugely important, if that makes sense. It does make sense, but when I, as you're describing it, I'm thinking one of the things I think we do as a culture is that we don't want to deal with that disaster. Our advice to people who have gone through the kinds of things you describe in your book is to say, well, you know, let's get, we want to get back to normal and get back to the way it was. I think a lot of people, even during COVID, and it's, it is during COVID now, COVID is not over. When are we going to get back to normal? And I think we do that never. in, yeah, never. I mean, it's, it's, as you say, transition, change, going forward, dealing with what is and, and different families deal. And I mean, your husband's going to deal different than my boyfriend or, you know, we have to like be able to look at people as individuals and how they survive grief and loss. I think loss somehow comes up and, and as a culture, we don't deal with loss well. We just want to cover it up or cover it over. Oh, Um, oh, absolutely. And one of the examples I try to use in the book is the Balkans. Um, You know, after World War II, after decades of loss, you've got Marshall Tito comes in, says, this is how we're going to live. We're going to forget about everything. Everyone's going to be happy, and and we'll all get along. And then, of course, he passes or dies, and then, you know, and then within years, Bosnia has a, a series of mass graves, mass murders, a horrible war, because we didn't address the past. Now, as an example of things improving, well, gosh, maybe we need to deal with the dead. Maybe we need to not just throw up a a monument over the mass grave, but actually disinter the mass grave, give people answers, and let people process what has occurred so maybe that the path forward 
is a little bit more stable, a little bit more certain, not built on uncertainty. And absolutely, we don't want to face or talk about loss because it's not fun. It's also a reminder that eventually it will happen to all of us. Yeah, we want to stay away from that, but we can't. It is going to happen to all of us, um, in, in, as you say, in one way or another. Let's talk about, well, maybe we should talk about, let's say, this disaster because it just happened in Michigan. High school, the, you know, killing of the, the, the shooter, the active shooter. Yeah, who the killed, shooting. I forgot how many children have already died. But um, I think the governor said something. I wanted you to comment on this because that this was an unimaginable tragedy. And I'm thinking it's so not unimaginable. This has been happening. We have, I don't know, I don't know the statistics about how many occurrences we've had of these kinds of killings. So isn't that, that was kind of a way of dismissing what had happened, it seemed to me. It's not an unimaginable tragedy. Yeah, it, it, I, to me, and I've been to two events in my lifetime that have killed almost a quarter of a million people each in a matter of the time it takes for most people to drink a cup of coffee. So I start when I teach people to say, look, I'm, I'm reality. I'm not academic. Um, and it's not if something's going to happen. It's just when and where. And there's nothing that is unimaginable or unexpected or unanticipated. But again, it goes back to people not knowing what to say. Now, I don't think the governor woke up and said, well, here's my day to say something that will be insensitive or harsh or mean. I'm in shock because this happens in someone else's state. This happens somewhere else. It doesn't happen to me. And when it does happen to people, it's scary because it reminds people that there's a lot of things in the world we don't control. And that's why I try to help people going through this. I said, look, these things have happened. Don't don't try to defuse a bomb that's blown up. Focus on the consequences, because that's what we're doing. We're doing consequence management. So this has happened. It's a horrible event. It's not the first. Sadly, it's not going to be the last. But right now, we have the families of, um, I think there were three three kids who sadly lost their lives. We have, the, we have the families of three kids. We have the school. That's a community. We have the investigation. All these are going to take time. So what's more helpful for families is to say, here's the process. Here's the expectations. So that they can start to plan and know what's next for them. And then when we bring the kids back into school, because kids handle grief differently, let's talk about what's occurred. Let's talk about how we go forward. We're not going to solve this tomorrow. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to do away with guns in the U.S. overnight. We may never do away with them. And we may not need to. We, we need to learn how to instead work with people for learning what's occurred and to prevent. And that, that's not an easy thing because people are complex. So we're helping people. You're helping people to transition to a new reality. Uh, once you do that, as I understand it, you don't you don't stay in touch with these families. This is what you do, and then you <laughs> transition into something else. You don't stay and maintain relationships on the long term with the families that you help. I, yeah, when when we go to an incident, part of when we train staff and and when I talk to people is when you go to an incident. 
you're, you're saying hello, being prepared to say goodbye, because we're not a replacement for the person who's lost. We're there as a guide. We're there as a resource. We're there to help people transition, but we're also going to be a reminder of something that, that wasn't happy. Now, I get emails from people. I have people call me, and there's one or two family members I talk to over time um, for work-related things or, or different questions people may have. But I make it their choice, not mine. Because, again, when I show up, I'm, I'm not showing up. I'm, when I was a deputy sheriff, if I knocked at your door at midnight, it wasn't to bring you good cheer. Right. So I wasn't a reminder of something that was good. So I, I don't want to be that intrusion on a person because you don't want the memories I have. And, and I don't want to make a memory that they're not wanting to, to continue with. What would you say, and I don't know that you could actually answer this question, I mean, given just the disasters that I mentioned, what in your, in, in, in the dealing with any one of them that I mentioned or any others, what would be the most, or was there one that was the most difficult for you to, to get through? Well, well, that's a great question. Um, and, and it's one I, I'm often asked. I, they're all difficult because you're dealing with a variety of emotions, cultures, bureaucracy. I find bureaucracy the most frustrating. Um, and I remind myself it's it's not done to make things harder, although it may seem that way at times. They're all difficult, but I remind myself that this was not a uh, a forced action to respond on my part. I did it because this is what I ended up doing in life. And I'll go home. So it's not about me. So I, I never tried to, to rate them as difficulty um, because when I did, then the next one, I'd find a different problem that was more frustrating. So I just kind of gave <laughs> up and figured they're all going to be difficult. Sort of like therapists doing therapy or counseling on an individual basis. It kind of sounds similar in terms of the reaction there, or what, you know, you see your patients, but you can't, you know, there's, uh, you just... You go on to next, and, and yeah, you don't stay. You can't stay stuck. Well, you could, but you don't. You shouldn't. Um, one of the things that I just mentioned in the intro was that uh, the personal toll, all of this exposure, you know, to all these mass deaths, um, what, what it's done to you. I mean, because this is a memoir. Your book is a memoir, Personal Effects. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm... I know enough about myself yet to answer that question. I know I'm different, and I think we're all different. I think the the toll is probably harder on people around me than it is for me. And, and what I mean by that is uh, things that, that bother a lot of people don't bother me. If you come to me and say, oh, we've got a problem, my first question is, well, how many people are injured or, or killed? And most people go, well, none. It's not that kind of problem. I go, oh, that's not a problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the big scope of things, not that big a deal to me because I'm used to, for most of my life, dealing with with big problems. And my first job in the Army was, was launch control for Persian nuclear missiles. So when the horn goes off, you're potentially getting ready to launch a nuclear missile. That's that's a big 
thing. That's a problem. That would be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, and back then, at, at this point in life, we didn't always know if they were drills or not because of the, the time period we were in. It was, you know, it was a very different time period. Um, so, and in, in college, I was a deputy sheriff. So, you know, there's a lot of problems you have in college, but those help you put your problems in perspective right away versus everything else. I was writing a ticket one day when I worked at the university, and a kid came up to me, and I turned around. I was dumb. I let him walk up behind me before I'd been to the academy because I was just doing parking enforcement, and he pulled out a, a stage prop. I didn't know it was a stage prop at the time. He pulled the trigger back. He said, that's my car. <laughs> well, I'd already written the tickets. So I was like, okay, what do we do? You know, and and you realize, well, there's things you control and there's things you can't. And so for me, stuff that stresses a lot of people doesn't stress me, which can cause conflict in itself in relationships. And then things that I worry about, other people don't worry about. So I go to a, a concert, I go to a hotel, I go to a hotel, I want to count the number of doors to the exit. I want to be on a certain floor, not to the point of paranoia, but just always ready, you know, flashlight by the bed, certain things I always pack with me, certain things I always look at when I'm booking stuff. Other people, oh, you know, you're crazy. That's never going to happen. Well, in my life, it has happened, and I've seen the consequences. So I don't want to sit there with a, you know, backpack packed ready to go out the door. That's a level too far, but I want to know where the door is. So, in other and words, we so have to, it, it we can be a, prepared, and your experience is obviously you are prepared. I, You know, some of the stuff you're talking about, I do that, I take the train Amtrak back and forth from New York City to the capital, to Albany, New York. I always take water with me because the train I know in my experience stops, there's no... There's there's no food aboard. There's no water that I know of aboard. So I always bring water and a flashlight. I think that's yeah, that's smart. Is that smart? Yes. And I too look as you're describing it now. I think because of all these disasters that happen, and because we see it on television twenty four seven. Go if I go to a theater or a concert, I'm always looking for the exit and wanting to sit near the exit. Um, and I think more and more people probably do do that, are prepared. But I want to ask you, like, what kind of, is it your, I mean, you had military training, you, you're a, you were a sheriff, you have all this training, you train uh, your mind to handle all of these disasters. But is there also something in your background, your own psyche that sort of makes you the right person for the job? Well, I, I mean, you could you could argue nature, nurture. You could go back and forth. I mean, my parents were divorced. It wasn't what I'd call a great childhood. I mean, I never wanted for anything. And great grandparents, and, and I think that you know my my parents did the best they could. Um, so different events have an impact, um, and and you, you I guess at the age that it happens is is how they your body develops, uh, whether it's survival, whether it's coping, whether it's just independence. Um, but I don't know if I could point to any one specific thing that that talks about it. I, I mean, I, I do mention some what I think are ironic things. Um, you know, I had an uncle who, gosh, the Christmas holiday back in 77, so when I was 12 years old, I come home and my, my mother says, oh, you'll, you'll see your uncle and your father on TV because they got arrested for having a meth lab. Now, today, that's quite common. Back in 1977, that wasn't common. And 
Mark also had a mountain lion because doesn't everyone have a pet mountain lion to guard their meth lab? Now, when you're 12, you don't really, I didn't, wasn't, you know, before the internet, wasn't aware of all this stuff. I just knew something was different. Dad would take us to visit, which is, you know, probably not the great parenting award. And so then, you know, you go home, oh, gosh, there's your parents on TV for making meth. And it's, and, Ten years later, I'd go to work for some of the same agencies that had been involved in, in their arrest. So I guess it's a, I guess it's different. So I'm not sure I can. I've answered that. No, I think you did. It, it's like nature nurture, right? It's your training. It's your background. It's how you were brought up. But it's also, you know, the choices you made in terms of career. Um, but now you've been doing this for a long time. Do you ever get depressed? Are you? Do you think about, I, I can't do this anymore, or this is becoming too much for me? Um, and um, I, I think, I is there a point where I don't want, or you think you won't be able to do it? Well, I, I just recently, my husband and I have sold the, the company to a, to a public company to, we hope, take it to the next level. And I've started to focus on my my transition or retirement where I want to work on advocacy. I, I do know what's harder for me now is I don't have patience with some of the bureaucracy. I, I get more frustrated at events uh, with with the governments and, and, and the bureaucracy can be absolutely mind-boggling. I, I use an example with Egypt Air 804, the crash in the Mediterranean, and for months the, the Egyptian government wasn't releasing the bodies. And our client was Egypt Air at the time, government airline, good, good airline, good people. And it's, this is maddening. These families need their loved ones. And so I actually wrote a letter to the president of Egypt saying, this is, this is madness. I, I hope this is bureaucracy and not intentional. And now a letter from me to the president of Egypt, who cares, I can do anything. But I cc'd the president of France and the, uh, and the Prime Minister of Canada, who both had citizens. Well, that got somebody's attention because a week later the deceased were released. And so it's things like that where there's bureaucracy that doesn't make sense and does nothing but cause distress that I get frustrated on and I know I start to lose patience. So those were to me things that show, yeah, I think it's time for me to move on. And I've been doing this for a while. It doesn't mean I've necessarily been doing everything well or right. And there's a lot of young people and, and the field has changed. I mean, that diversity is, is amazing. A lot of women coming into forensics and going into this field is awesome to see. And so sometimes I, I don't want people that come after me to do as well as I did. I want them to do better. I want them to build on the foundation because there's things we need to do to improve how we respond to these events because they're not going away. And impact is too expensive. And I don't mean in dollars. I mean in emotions. Yeah. Well, advocacy, uh, as you described it, I mean, that's where it's needed, right? Building on what you've done and uh, helping, as you say, all of the new people who are allowed to be doing this, women included, which is great. And uh, um, we only have a couple minutes left. I want people to buy your book, Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living. So, Robert, um, what website or website should we go to? to buy the book and to keep up with what you're doing. Well, the, the, the book is, you know, uh, I, I love independent booksellers. They're, they're some of the neatest little stores around town. And in Key West, of course, we have Books and Books, which is the Duty Bloom 
store, and if you come, you actually get to see Judy once in a while. And she's a great, great, great person. <laughs> um, and then there's you know tons of independent bookstores, and there's the the Amazons, the Barnes and Nobles, all good bookstores, and libraries are stocking it. So you don't have to buy it. Sorry, publisher, but you know <laughs> you can. <laughs> all right, don't say that. Just the library. Yeah, we have thirty seconds left. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so my website, www.robertajensen.com, is where I try to post my blog and where I try to say, here's some lessons learned. Here's what I think this means. Here's what I expect from the pandemic. It's just me saying, here's what life or my experience says you might want to think about. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of great information. And also robertajensen.com. Go to that for your blog and to continue the conversation. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 